everyone, and welcome back to the Psychology PhD, a podcast developed by grad students here in the Columbia University Psychology Department, where we discuss psych-focused graduate programs. And once again, I'm Monica Tiu, a fifth-year student here in our program. For season two, we're doing interviews about paths to grad school and grad school experiences with grad students in our department to help you guys learn a little bit more of the diversity of experiences that people bring into graduate school. So for this episode, I'm really excited to introduce Emily Nakawita, a fourth year graduate student working with Dr. Tori Higgins. And excitingly, Emily will be taking over as host after this episode as I will at some point, hopefully in the near future, be graduating. So Emily is going to be taking over the reins and I have full faith that she is going to do a fantastic job. So this episode serves to help me and you guys get to know a little bit more about Emily as she begins to guide you through the rest of this podcast. Emily, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, Monica. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about your... So I, you know, not knowing the full story, know a little bit about your high-power pre-PhD corporate life. Um, So I'm excited to learn about that as our listeners get to as well. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, Well, the short version is that it was a really winding and unusual kind of path uh, that started with a corporate career that you mentioned before and ended up with this PhD program. Uh, The longer story is that, you know, I was always fascinated by psychology. And when I started as an undergraduate at Georgetown. I was an undeclared major. Um, And this was back in 2004, which is revealing my age. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I went home during winter break after my first semester at Georgetown. And I told my parents, you know, mom, dad, I think I want to major in psychology. I love it. Uh, And I have very practical kind of um, pragmatic Midwestern parents uh, who are both kind of business focused kinds of people. And they essentially said, eh, we don't know if that's the greatest idea. Why don't you get a business degree? And you can always go back to school. And so uh, I spent my undergraduate career focused on marketing, finance, international business. Those were my three majors at Georgetown. Three majors, girl, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do with with that business degree or in business. And so I figured, eh, I'll, I'll do a few majors. Um, I was able wow. to kind of squeeze it in. So um, I ended up deciding to pursue marketing because marketing really is a mix of business and psychology. Um, and the reason I say that is you can't sell or market products to people effectively unless you know what really drives them, what motivates them. And motivation is the the part of psychology that I'm most interested in, which I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about later. And so I worked in advertising originally um, at a number of different agencies, small and large. Uh, I ended up jumping to the client side, um, so corporate marketing uh, at Morgan Stanley just before I came back to school and this, period of working in marketing lasted much longer than I'm kind of describing it here. It was almost 10 years. I think it was about nine and a half. Um, But then I decided, you know, what I ultimately love is a combination of two things. First of all, understanding what motivates people, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And second, working on 
research, data analysis. Um, I really enjoyed looking at the performance of our campaigns, uh, running, you know, at that, you know, pretty basic analyses on that data, but I loved that process of data analysis. Um, and so I figured, you know, I think I might enjoy grad school in psychology. Around that time, I had turned 30, which is a totally arbitrary age, but it is, you know, a decade, a milestone. And so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do this, should I just do it now? Yeah. Um, and so I ended up enrolling in a post-bac program. Um, I, at first, I didn't even know what those were. I was thinking about just taking a few courses at a local school, um, discovered these programs exist. So I joined Columbia's post-bac program in psychology. And a year and a half later, I was applying to and accepted to the PhD program here. Um, and so that's the, I guess, medium length uh, path to how I ended up uh, here in Columbia's psych department. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I guess I'll go from that and start kind of probing a little bit deeper sure. and asking some questions. Um, so uh, you've said that you obviously like managed to weave in your interest in psychology and your like sort of stated perhaps externally driven goal of wanting to get a job in business perhaps more lucrative um do you feel like how do or rather how do you feel like your experience in marketing specifically informs the kind of research you're doing now that you're not necessarily bound by a company is wanting to sell more product yeah well first of all it's it's nice I enjoy not being bound by uh, wanting to sell more product, which really limited the kinds of research questions we could ask mm -hmm. as marketers. Um, but I do think that there were aspects, and I'm not sure it's marketing in particular or just having worked in business in quote unquote the real world um, that's been really helpful uh, in being a PhD student, but it mm -hmm. has. So things like project management, organizing schedules. I, I don't think I appreciated until I was in grad school just how much administrative type work there is in oh, order to get yeah. <laughs> in order to get research done. Um, and so I think that that work that I had done previously in terms of managing marketing and advertising campaigns um, from you know coming up with an idea through, the production and execution of that idea and seeing it out in the real world. I mean, there are actually some really pretty uh, clear parallels to the research process where you come up with a question, um, you figure out how you're going to operationalize it, make it happen. You're developing materials of some sort often, maybe they're stimuli or things you'll share with participants, um, seeing how things perform, whether it's a marketing campaign or uh, you know your research study optimizing, doing some more, and then somehow um, kind of writing it up or putting a bow on it uh, in terms of a, a publication here in, in this world. Um, and I guess in the, the marketing world, that would be wrapping up your campaign, submitting it for awards, that kind of thing. Um, but it's actually, there are a lot of just kind of day-to-day -day project management parallels in that process. So that was really useful. Um, and then interestingly, I wasn't expecting this, but the kind of research that I do, uh, which is motivation focused in the Higgins lab, uh, there are quite a few scholars out there who are using the, the theories that were developed in our lab uh, in kind of academic 
marketing publications and research. Um, and so they're looking at how we can take what we know about what motivates people kind of as a whole deep down fundamentally, um, how that can be used for marketing purposes or even management purposes. So how can you motivate your team more effectively? Um, how can we use what we know about these uh, different kind of motivational profiles to encourage people to you know, buy the products or services that we're marketing? So I kind of came from marketing into a research role, but I've found that uh, there are lots of opportunities and also a decent amount of funding to then kind of take this research that I'm doing and translate it back into marketing. Um, and so that's been interesting. I wasn't expecting uh, to be doing marketing type research, but I've actually uh, you know, been on a few of those publications. So we'll see. I think the door is very open as far as whether which direction I end up leaning coming out of this program. Um, yeah, I was actually kind of you know, or, yeah. curious because it sounds like, I mean, you know, I don't want to ask you to put a nail on, oh, this is exactly what I want to do so that we can come back and be like, well, did she do what she said she was going to? Um, but it is very much, uh, it's really handy that you do have all of these options where your research has such clear applications and that you have experience sort of on both sides. Um, so that, cause a lot of what some people, you know, come into grad school with, it's like, I have X experience and I might be curious about doing Y, but it can feel a little bit risky because I don't have any prior experience doing that. And it might be a big jump. Like, what if I don't like it? Things like that. Yeah. Um, so in that exactly. way, like taking the path that you did helps, you know, a lot more now about where you want to go sort of forward during and after the program, which sounds quite handy. Yeah, I think it's useful. It's, uh, it also, it's helpful in a way because I do realize though there are so many different paths that one can take after a PhD program and so many different career opportunities. Um, but it's also daunting because there are so many that limiting it down is a little bit uh, nerve wracking. So yeah. I'm glad that I'm still not at the point yet in the program where I need to make decisions about <laughs> what I'll be doing afterwards. Um, but I think it's it's great to know, you know, for listeners of this podcast, as people are considering whether or not a PhD is right for them, it's, I think, helpful to know, and I would have liked to know that there are more opportunities than you would even imagine for careers coming out of a program like this. It's not just, you know, become a professor. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I would actually love the idea of becoming a professor, but, um, you know, that's, there are just so many directions somebody can go with a degree like this. Yeah. So sort of calling back to, you know, people listening to this podcast who might be relatively early on in their academic and professional careers. Do you think that like a PhD program was on your radar, for example, mm -hmm. like during undergrad or right after undergrad, or is this the kind of thing that you sort of discovered your interest in the types of research you could do with a, in a PhD, like as a function of the job that you ended up taking? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like it's a bit of a mix of both and also a little bit of neither. So what's interesting is I think if I had come to Georgetown as I did, loved psychology as I did, and I had folks around me who were encouraging me to continue pursuing that rather than to kind of shift gears and, and pursue business, I think I would have 
ended up finding myself in some sort of a research assistant position, realizing I loved this work because I always knew I loved the theory. When I took psych courses, I loved them. Um, you know, I, I know this doesn't count for a whole lot, but I, every time I'd go to, you know, Barnes and Noble, I was so excited to read the pop psychology books. Um, I, I, was, I just, I love psychology so much. So I think I would have liked to start the kind of grad school process a bit earlier. I think um, the reason that I didn't is it was a bit of a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Uh, and also also a an enjoyment of what I did. So I really enjoyed what I did when I was working in marketing. Um, I didn't find that it kind of lit me up uh, deep down the way that working on kind of more purely academic research does. Um, but I liked what I was doing and there was some psychology baked into it. So consumer psychology, um, understanding, as I've described before, what motivates them. And so I think I hung on for quite a while on my marketing career mm -hmm. uh, because I thought, oh, maybe if I land at this type of agency where they really care about marketing strategy and not just doing, you know, flashy commercials, then maybe that will finally satisfy me. Or if I end up at this kind of, uh, you know, client, uh, where they really care about marketing research, then maybe that will kind of scratch that itch. Mm -hmm. And so I think for a long time, I decided not to pursue the PhD because I kept thinking like, oh, I just haven't found quite the right opportunity yet. And, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, as I mentioned, and there there are financial incentives for staying in the kind of the I business mean, world. Yeah, we've definitely <laughs> talked in previous episodes of this podcast about the like mostly livable but not necessarily like luxurious stipends that we receive as PhD students for our work. Yes. Um, so I knew it was going to be I was going to be making between a quarter and a third of what I was making in business Whew. coming to grad school. And so all of these are factors that that weighed in. Um, but in retrospect, I do wish that I had gone back for the PhD a little bit earlier. Um, I was glad to get that marketing experience, um, but I think I, at some point I knew I wanted to go back and I'd have conversations with friends, even in the marketing world and say, mm -hmm. you know, I think I would just love to get a graduate degree in psychology and work on research. I wonder how people actually do that. Um, but what's interesting is I didn't know because I hadn't had any research I, I had marketing research experience in the corporate world but yeah. i hadn't i didn't have any academic research experience as an undergrad because once i as a freshman decided okay business it is i really focused on that path yeah and so i didn't really have a great appreciation for what it would take to get into a phd program what exactly academic research looked like how important research experience was you know really all the the topics that you've covered in this podcast, um, those were all just big areas of confusion for me um, as someone in the business world who didn't have uh, someone in the academic world who was mentoring me. Um, so I would have liked to go back sooner, but I also didn't really know what that entailed. And so somehow I think I needed to find my way to a post-bac program or some sort of academic environment where I would have that kind of mentorship. Um, and I wish that had happened earlier in some ways, but, you know, I don't have any 
major regrets or anything. Um, I'm happy where I am now. So that's the I think your question. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the question had been like, should Emily, should young Emily have gone back earlier? Um, yeah. Maybe she should have, but she didn't, and it all worked out anyway. Yeah. I think now's a really great time to talk a little bit about how sort of you found out about the post-bac options that were available to you, how you decided which one was the best fit for you, and how that um, sort of led you to being in this PhD program now. Sure. So when I decided, when I turned 30, as I mentioned, that was kind of the weird arbitrary milestone where I decided, well, if I'm going to make a change, I should make a change now. Um, I had already been thinking for a few years about going back to grad school, not knowing what kind of graduate degree I wanted um, or what kinds of graduate degrees there even really were. Um, It was just kind of an unformed idea at that point. Um, And so about a year before I found the post-bac program, I had started looking into programs. So I, I'm, um, to take a step back, I'm married. I've been living in New York City for quite a while. And at this point in the process, I wasn't confident enough that I knew for sure grad school was right for me to uproot us and, and kind of move us um, across the country. That makes sense. And so, yeah. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to look into what kinds of opportunities there are in terms of graduate studies in psych in New York City. And originally I thought I would look just at the, um, the CUNY schools, so City University of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, it's kind of like a community college, but a, a good one. Um, and they offer some psych courses. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go back and take some additional lecture courses just to kind of dip my toe in the water. Um, and I also looked into some master's programs at CUNY and at NYU. And at that point, I hadn't looked into Columbia because I assumed, oh, Columbia is fancy and they're not going to want me or something like that. I just didn't think that I would be Columbia material for whatever reason. And so I ended up speaking to a woman who was in a master's program at NYU. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it, it sounded interesting to me, but coming out of, of a master's program, you often, it was a terminal master's program. And so I wouldn't be able to just do research coming out of that sort of a program. And I started to get the sense like, oh, maybe I need to do a PhD. Um, and then I got really busy and I kind of fell off for a year. And then I turned 30 <gasps> and decided, okay, I need to look back into this. And in looking back into it, I came across some websites that are really useful for some reasons and really stress inducing uh, for other reasons. So you... one of them is the grad. Yeah, cafe. I was going to say the, uh, <laughs> the website that perhaps might not be named, but the grad yes. cafe it is enter so, at your own risk. Exactly. Um, so the grad cafe can be a really stressful place to visit um, when you're applying to graduate programs um, because everyone is talking about where they're applying, what their application profile looks like, when they're hearing back, and other people haven't heard back, so it can be a really stressful place. But at that point, I was just looking into programs, and somebody mentioned post-bacs or post-baccalaureate programs. And I thought, what is that? I've I've never heard of a post-bac program before. And I discovered that Columbia was the only uh, university in New York City that had a post-bac program in psychology. And it seemed perfect for me, actually. Um, it 
post-bac programs like Columbia's are geared at people that majored in something else as an undergrad, but are interested in ultimately pursuing research in psych or in whatever the topic is of, of the post-bac program that you're applying to. Um, and so I thought, well, this is a great way for me to get a bit more coursework under my belt and to get some research experience. Um, and so I applied only to Columbia's post-bac. There are some other psych post-bacs across the country, but not too many of them. I wanna say there's only around 10 oh, or wow. something like that. I didn't when realize I was, it was that small. Yeah, it's a really small sort of, sort of thing. Um, and so I applied, I was accepted. Um, and so within essentially a month and a half of applying, it's not a long application period like the PhD or even like a master's, um, I was accepted. So I resigned from Morgan Stanley and ended up here and it worked out perfectly. It was exactly the kind of experience I needed uh, and provided the kind of mentorship that I really needed in order to find my way to the PhD program that I'm in now. Yeah, and we of course we have talked about this, as you know, on um, a previous episode in season one of the podcast, but one of the things I really like about post-bac programs that I think you've highlighted so many of the positives of is that it's a way for people who don't have access to that traditional academic mentoring structure to get it, because as we've heard from previous interview guests, you know, cold emailing people is sometimes effective and sometimes not. And when you have these programs that do have formal application structure, where then you can, you know, frame your own experience and then get in and get access to mentoring, like those can be really, really, really great options for people who have a lot of experience and are super qualified, but not necessarily in the traditional ways that incoming PhD programs expect. Um, yes. Completely agree. I will say, though, since we're touting all the benefits of post-bac programs, it's also worth noting a drawback, which is that they're not funded. And so one of the benefits, I suppose, of having worked in the corporate world for so long is yeah. that I was able to save and, you know, I had the privilege of being able to to pay for this. Um, but that is a downside of, of post-bac programs that folks should be aware of is that um, you know, it's it's out of pocket. Uh, yeah. each, credit, um, each credit you're funding yourself. So I think there are also strategic ways you can make post-bac programs work for you. Um, so for example, at Columbia's, uh, there is a certificate that you can earn at the end if you complete a certain number of, of courses, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but graduate programs, PhD programs, don't actually care too much about that certificate. Um, what's important is mostly the research experience you're getting in the program, as well as some of the coursework. Um, and so I would just recommend to anybody who's listening and who's thinking, oh, maybe a post-bac program could, could be a good idea for me, uh, is that you can use that kind of program to your benefit take the courses you, you think you need to take, get access to the mentorship, get access to the research opportunities, uh, but don't feel like you need to continue investing if those mentors that you connect with through the program are giving you the advice that like, hey, we think you're ready to apply for, for PhD programs, even though the certificate quote unquote isn't finished. Um, and that can help you save some of your own funds uh, as you're preparing to um, you know, be living on a stipend for a few years after that. Yeah. And for a lot of these post-bac programs, and I ask this because I don't know off the top of my head, 
mm-hmm. um, are there options for doing them part-time where you'd be able to like work another job and then take maybe like one possibly two classes per per semester yes so it is possible it's possible to do the post either full-time or part-time um, it's worth calling out though that I think it's it can be challenging to do them part-time unless you have a really flexible sort of job Mm -hmm. uh, because the courses you're taking are their college courses undergraduate during the day (laughs) exactly they're 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 during the day and so a lot of jobs that people have um, you know my past career included uh, was the kind of job where I was expected to work nine to six plus you know nine to six plus I'll just say Um, and so it wouldn't have worked out for me to say, oh, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1010 to 1125, I've got this class. And then Mondays and Wednesdays from three to 420, I've got that class. Like that wasn't going to work for me. Um, But there are a lot of people who had part-time jobs. Um, Interestingly, in the post-bac program with me, there were several people who worked as matchmakers for this app um, wow. A matchmaking service. I don't wow. know. I think one of them what originally. What an application of psychology indeed. Yes, exactly. Wow. Um, I think one of them only did it originally and then shared like, wow, I can make all this money and do it while I'm doing the post-bac program. So I think there are definitely kind of scrappy ways that you can work part-time if you find that sort of a flexible gig. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that although it it's difficult um, and I know it requires financial resources to go full time to be not working and paying tuition for a program like that. Yeah. I do think that doing that, finding a way to make that work helped me in the end because it opened up more time for research. And so it meant that I didn't need to squeeze in a few hours as a volunteer research assistant here or there. I was able to spend essentially all of the time that I wasn't in class as as a research assistant, um, contri- contributing to not just, you know, the one lab, but I applied to another lab as well. Um, and if folks are looking to jump into a PhD program more quickly uh, rather than taking their time, and you can discuss kind of the pros and cons of, of how quickly you try to do that. Yeah. Um, but if you are trying to do that more quickly, uh, you know, acquiring more research experience quickly helps. Um, and so not working helps in that process because unfortunately, you know, as I know you've touched on in this podcast, um, the world of being a research assistant is really kind of unfair and a little bit exploitative. Yeah, It's mostly yeah. volunteer-based, but that's the way it is right now. And so um, I found that going full-time as a post-bac student allowed me to take advantage of the connections that I was able to make with folks at Columbia and do as much research as I could as quickly as possible. Um, I'd like to ask sort of more broadly, like, what do you like most about being a PhD student, whether it be what you get to work on, your day-to-day, your schedule, whatever, and then on the other side of the coin, what do you dislike most? Even, you know, knowing that you are presumably enjoying your time here, there are certainly still things that you might not like so much. Yeah, absolutely. So what I like the most, uh, and I feel like this is going to sound like a cheesy answer, (laughs) um, but I just love, 
I love research. I, I love the topics that I study. Um, so as I think I briefly mentioned earlier, I study motivation and goal pursuit. And there's literally nothing more interesting to me in the entire world than understanding what motivates people, how can people most effectively pursue their goals. Like, I can't think of any more fascinating way to spend my time than to seek to better understand those questions. And so that's what I love most is getting to work on research. And, and really, the, the opportunity to not just explore those questions as we were discussing earlier through the context of like, okay, how can I understand motivation so I can sell something to people? It's yeah. getting to think about the questions that are truly the most interesting to me and then develop a study to answer them and get an answer and share that answer with other people and then go back and, and kind of dig in further. Um, there's just, it's, it's so cool that I, it still kind of blows my mind that this is something that people get to do as a career. Mm -hmm. Though it's worth noting that I think I came in with slightly rose-colored glasses. And also what, what allows us to do that research is securing funding and grants and what other people think is funding worthy yeah. isn't always the question that you're most interested in. And so that slightly, uh, you know, has removed my rose-colored glasses, yeah. but still the the research, um, you know, there's nothing better. And in many ways that that is sort of like another flavor of the ways in which doing research at a company um, constrains the questions you can ask, because ultimately it does kind of depend on who is giving me money to run these studies and what do they want out of the studies that I'm yes. running. And in academic research, we absolutely, you know, the government and private agencies that give us money, they have things that they think that are interesting. If you're doing industry research for a company, a company has quest or ideas of what they find interesting. And so, you know, I think we all have to sort of work in this space of how can I combine what I'm most interested in with, or how can I combine what I'm most interested in with what the people who are paying me <laughs> are most yes. interested in? Yes, 100%. Um, so I think, but, but even with that caveat, the research is what I love most about grad school. I just, when I get to, I, I've often, and you know, I think there are portions of the process that I'm less into. Mm -hmm. And so everyone has their favorite portions of the research process. Like I would happily design studies, analyze my data. I love analyzing my data. I could spend like hours and days just like looking at it in different ways, right? Um, and then going back and running another, like I wish I could just like live in that cycle. I don't yeah. love the writing publications quite so much. Me too. Um, <laughs> some people love writing though, you know, like um, there's a colleague of mine in, in one of the labs that I work at here who who absolutely loves the writing process. And so I think everybody has their their kind of favorite parts of the process. But I would, oh, I, I just can't believe that we get to do the study design and analysis process over and over and people pay us to do it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what I dislike, because you actually, you asked about dislikes yes. of the program. So beyond disliking writing publications and writing grants, I think I just don't like writing uh, <laughs> as much as I wish I did. Um, I dislike 
that I think, again, this was a rose-colored glasses thing. I came in thinking, oh, if I'm a grad student, my schedule is going to be so flexible because maybe I'll take a few classes here or there, but basically I can spend my days doing what I love. Yeah. But uh, I realized that when taking into account the other responsibilities uh, and important and valuable responsibilities of being a grad student, um, such as being a teaching assistant or mentoring um, kind of junior scholars and undergraduates um, or helping with, you know, departmental administrative work, um, you know, organizing colloquia or um, you know, just the kinds of things that, that need to be done to keep a department functioning. There's quite a bit of work in all of those spaces, teaching, mentoring, and kind of admin that needs to be done. And so often, especially semesters when, uh, when I have a teaching appointment, I find that there's much less time for research than I would like, given how much I love the research process. Um, and I find that my hours, you know, I always thought I had pretty crazy hours in the business world um, where, you know, I was working at New York City ad agencies, which are known for being, you know, kind of a uh, yeah, late night I mean, kind of environment. All I know about then, that is Mad Men. So. Yes, yes. And then I was working at Morgan Stanley, which is a big financial firm. And they're also known for having crazy hours. And so I, I just, I pictured that my hours would be reduced um, coming to grad school, but I find that at least during kind of certain seasons, I'm working far more than I even worked in those types of positions. I'm just working all day, every day. Um, and I'm doing that because I really care about all the work I'm doing, even the work that's not research related. Um, but I wish there was a bit more balance. And I do think, so if you go on Twitter or anywhere where people who are in academia are, are chatting, and you know, they're, they're this feeling of um, kind of overwork, or in some cases it can lead to burnout. I know it's not something that just I feel, it's something that can be kind of endemic to this, this field. Yeah. Um, but that's something I, I do dislike because I really value work-life balance. I value, you know, my relationships with my husband and my friends. I'm about to have a child. I'm currently pregnant. And so I'm sure I'll value time with that kid. And so um, I dislike the common lack of balance um, in, in this world and as a PhD student in particular. Um, but you know, for me right now, uh, the trade-offs are, are absolutely worth it. So I'm powering through. Yeah. Are there specific strategies that you found useful or like structures that your mentors have put in place, things like that, that you feel have helped maintain work-life balance and like fight against this sort of culture of overwork that we definitely have? Yeah, I... So semesters when I can manage it, so non-teaching semesters and during the summer, uh, I really try to maintain work hours as, as much as I can, um, meaning that when it's, and it depends, I guess, on, you know, depends on the season, like yeah. I said before, but let's say like 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m., I try to shut my laptop, 
stop working and be able to spend the evening with my husband or with friends or whatever it is that that we're going to be doing yeah. outside of my academic life. Um, and really just having that, that guideline for myself of, okay, it's time. I'm just going to stop now, unless there's something that urgently, urgently needs to get done. Yeah. Um, having that little rule for myself has been helpful. Um, I would love to not work the weekends. One of my uh, faculty mentors here has shared that she decided not to work one weekend day uh, out of every weekend. Um, so for her, Sundays are held as non-work days. Um, there are times in my PhD career where I've been able to do that. There are times when I haven't been able to do that and I just need to keep working to get everything done that I need to get done. So I've had some success with setting these sort of sorts of boundaries for myself, but I think even when I'm not successful in maintaining the boundaries by keeping that rule in mind, um, I don't know, it makes it easier to do as time goes on. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to finish everything I need to finish because um, the work in this world is kind of never ending. Right? There's yeah. Always project, there's always another something. Um, and so just having that in the back of my mind, okay, wrap up by 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. Yeah. Um, that's really the best advice I could give, which probably isn't that helpful, but no, I, that's, I mean, that's what I've got. <laughs> N equals one, I find it extremely helpful. I actually, like early on in my pathway through this program, I was really, really, really bad about setting work hours because, you know, in PhD programs, and we talk about this, I think, earlier in the podcast as well, that sometimes it feels like because there's always something else you could be doing and sometimes it's things that I really want to do where it's like oh like I'm so close to being able to get this graph to look at my data for the first time like oh it's so exciting and then you sort of enter this like dissociative state where you're just like I'm so close to getting to look at my data and then you look (laughs) up and it's like 10 30 p.m and I'm like oh god (laughs) yeah that doesn't happen that often in arguably those sorts of flow states where you're just like, this is what I want to be doing right now, those can be kind of exhilarating. But then you also have this piece of like, sometimes it feels like we need to take long hours for things that are not as intrinsically motivated. Um, Yes. And especially, especially during the pandemic, year two going on more now um, that I found very useful is being very strict with myself in setting some kind of like work hours limit where I feel like I can be more productive during the day if I know that I have off time that I've said like I don't have to work at this time and I know you know like nobody else is asking me to do those extra hours it's just me and the sort of idea that I have in my head of like oh but I like could be doing this so I think that the forethought that you've had to establish that like right from the get-go has hopefully helped you a lot hopefully it's helped some I think it's something we all struggle with and I I do also think you know there's overwork in academia but there's overwork in business or industry as we like to call business and academia um I, I think that anyone these days who's a 
you know, relatively high functioning individual or is in a career that involves, you know, ambition and trying to, you know, trying to go after yeah, something like that a lot of people want to do, ladder, yeah. climb a ladder. Yeah. Like it's, um, I feel like it's a problem with our society and with the fact that we have technology that allows us to be always on and working all the time. Yes. Like it's a bigger issue. So I can't only say it's a, a problem with being a PhD oh, student. Oh, absolutely. I often um, use that yeah. to regulate my own emotions. You know, it's like the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. We yes. just have our particular like species of grass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm looking at the time and it looks like we can start winding down in a little bit. So right now I'd like to ask you if there's anything else on your mind that you'd like to talk about that you haven't yet and or if there is a piece of advice that you'd like to give to aspiring PhD students, please feel free to share. So I think the one piece of advice I would give, and so this I guess is limited to individuals like me who did something else first. Um, I have lots of friends and I hear from lots of friends of friends now who say, you know, I'm really interested in graduate school, but I've been doing this other thing. How can I, is there any way I can jump in? Is it too late for me? Um, Those are the kinds of questions I hear a lot. And those were the kinds of things I wondered myself. So at 30, I, I realized, you know, I wasn't the typical student in, in terms of age, I worried, uh, will, will nobody think that I'm the right kind of person for a program like this? Um, and also, is it too late in the sense that like, have I just made it too far in my career uh, to, for this to be a, a worthwhile change? And so the piece of advice that I would give to listeners and that I give to friends of friends and people that reach out to me all the time is that it's not too late. Um, there is a path. If you think of your working life, at least as an American, right? So we start working around 20, let's say, and with social security as it is, maybe you stop working at 65. (laughs) Will that even be there for us? I'm assuming not. So let's say we work until we're like, I don't know, 75 or something, 80. And so I was worried at 30 that it was too late, but I was only about 10 years into a career and I would still have like decades and decades to go. And so there is so much time. There is so much opportunity. Uh, I would recommend that people find people who are doing what they're currently doing or doing what they they want to do, I should say. So for me, I found that through the post-bac program. Um, But again, reaching out to your network, to friends of friends, it's not too late. You have all the time in the world. Um, and so go after it. All right. Thank you so much. And with that, that wraps up this episode of the Psychology PhD podcast. Just as we've done with previous episodes, we'll be updating the show notes to include links to relevant topics as soon as each new episode launches. You can find the show notes below this episode in the description if you're watching on YouTube or in the show notes section of whatever podcast app you're listening on. To receive notifications when new episodes are released, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You're also welcome, as before, to join our email list to receive an email each time we release a new episode. And finally, if you found this interview or anything else we've published helpful, 
once again, please consider liking the episode on YouTube or rating and reviewing the show in your preferred podcast app. And Emily, we'll be talking to you next time. See you then.